welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. When I was 10 years old, I'll confess to you, I did not know who the President of the United States was. I did not know who the Supreme Leader of North Korea was. I did not know who the premier was, and I wasn't aware that uh, he and the prime minister were going to be making daily video updates on YouTube that would affect my life. Uh, And yet, my son, who is 10, and all of his friends do. They know all of that. They talk about it in school. They talk about it in the backyard uh, when they're playing. They joke about it. And I think there's lots of reasons for this. Um, The last year has been full of issues that have, in a sense, taken, let's say, the idea of politics um, and power that maybe in the past a few people who were interested in that kind of stuff, who were really passionate about it or who studied it would talk about it, but nobody else really cared. It has brought all of those things uh, and thrust them into the center of the classroom and the neighborhood and the dinner table and at church and with our community. And part of that is because the issues being discussed are really important ones having to do with racism and money and power and abuses of power and healthcare and education. And so we are talking about these things more than ever. There's a few reasons for that. One is that the media, in a sense, has taken on the role of political watchdog. And so the media is constantly bringing to us their stories, but also their evaluations of how the administration is doing, how leadership is doing, how power is being handled. It's also coming to us because, in case you didn't know, your social media feed is actually built on algorithms whereby whatever you click on, whatever you watch, is what you're going to get fed more of. The recommended for you. Like, basically, you're not just being presented with information. You are being presented with the information that you want to see. And so we are continuing to hear more of the same ideas of the things that we are listening to and reading and talking about. But then I think, you know, most importantly is, like, maybe more than ever, maybe this was always true, but we really realize it now, young and old, no matter what age we are, that the decisions that people uh, in politics or political parties or people with power are making are affecting our lives on a daily, on an hour-by-hour basis. Now, regardless of, and I guess what I've, what I've noticed in this is that um, for some of us, this has made us more politically engaged, more politically interested, more passionate about politics, about political parties, about these issues. Some of us maybe have actually gotten less, um, we, we become disengaged, more in despair, more whatever, I can't keep track, or I, I have too many opinions, or it's too frustrating, I'm out. But regardless of where you might be on that spectrum, I think it's safe to say that what we are seeing more of across the board is more fear, more anger, more division, not just between political parties, but sometimes around dinner tables, and more despair. And can we, can we all just agree that we don't want more of that? We don't want more fear, more anger, more division, and more despair in our schools, in our homes, in our churches, in our places of work, and in our neighborhoods. The challenge with this, certainly for people of faith, we would say, yeah, we don't want more of that. But the challenge with us for people of faith is we have images and ideas of Jesus that somehow we don't know how they, those images, or Jesus in a sense, fits with what we are dealing with in our present political context. 
See, because some of us have this picture of Jesus as the baby, the baby Jesus. Many of us grew up in, uh, you know, in churches and where these, these were the images that were on our stained glass primarily. And we're like, oh, the baby Jesus, he's so cute, but he's going to get chewed up and spat out. He's going to get eaten alive by these grown men and women who are politicians. And like the baby Jesus is no match for the world of politics. And so some of us have ideas of that. We also have images of conservative Jesus. <laughs> you know, that Jesus would somehow have a more of a conservative stance to the issues that are being debated today. Or there's liberal Jesus that's like, hey, yeah, Jesus would be for us, right? Hey, love is love, isn't it? Cons there's conservative Jesus, there's liberal Jesus. Then there's the heavenly Jesus. Some of us have seen these pictures where, and, and some of us have those heavenly Jesus pictures where he's doing that funny thing with his hand. And I don't know what that means, but there's lots of pictures like that um, kind of throughout history. But this is the idea of Jesus is sort of above and separated from all. He's not concerned with all of these political things of earth. He's in heaven. And you may have heard it of saying of, of, a, of a, a man or a woman, oh, she's so heavenly minded. She's of no earthly good. He's so heavenly minded. We can think that of Jesus. He's detached from this. He's up there. And this is all the stuff of earth, not very spiritual. Jesus is concerned with heavenly spiritual things, not daily political life and political parties and all of the issues being debated. And maybe the image is actually most important for us, uh, uh, that mo most has shaped how we think of it, is Jesus with the lamb, Jesus carrying the lamb. It's like, nice Jesus, you know, looking after the lamb. And he, he's probably moved out to the country, right? Because he's, you know, he doesn't like the urban life and all of the politics to go with. And he doesn't want anybody putting signs on his lawn. And so Jesus is out in the country and he's just trying to be nice to everyone in nature and he's getting in touch. And, and he's not in touch with all this stuff. That's all part of the broken mess. <laughs> These are the images of Jesus. And because we have them, we struggle to actually to engage, in a sense, with the world around us. Because many of us didn't grow up with this image, Jesus the revolutionary. And of course, this is a play on sort of a, a famous Cuban revolutionary, Che Guevara. Uh, and whether or not you know anything about that, the idea of this kind of image or is, is about revolution, is about rebellious opposition to the establishment. And this is a provocative image. I get it. Um, part of it is what we said is that actually we don't often see or weren't talked, told about Jesus the revolutionary. Why? Because revolutions are dangerous, right? Any of you that have studied history or perhaps you were lived in another country, you lived through a revolution. Well, in revolutions, things get turned over and wrecked. Uh, people get caught in literal crossfire or just sort of political or familial crossfire. Revolutions are dangerous, and it is true, we said, the revolution of Jesus is dangerous. But it's, it's a different kind of dangerous. It's a different kind of revolution. And we began by talking about last week that the revolution of Jesus, even though we don't think about Jesus as a revolutionary, is that in three years, he turned the entire world upside down. And yet, it was not dangerous to the people who joined in the sense that it was nonviolent. The results of Jesus' revolution were beautiful. It was a revolution of nonviolence. It was a revolution of reconciliation. It was a revolution that, were, that was, Jesus was constantly trying to bring people together, not divide them. 
It was a revolution where those who were poor or sick or weak or marginalized or had been pushed to the margins, in a sense, were invited in, were cared for, were looked after. They weren't trampled underfoot by the newest, latest movement, the newest, latest leader or rebellion or uprising. No, they were actually cared for and looked after. It was a revolution that actually got people who would have been divided by ethnic lines, divided by socioeconomic lines, divided by race, actually to be brought together and call each other brother and sister. It was a revolution that lifted up women and children to have equal status and value with men, the rest of society. And it was a revolution that brought healing from sickness and deliverance from evil spirits. We said, man, the revolution of Jesus is beautiful, but it is dangerous because, as we said, it is appealing and repelling at the same time. Like there are some aspects of Jesus that we love what he's, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus turned that thing upside down. That's old, that needed to go, that needed to change. And there's other things that Jesus, wait, don't touch that. Why are you talking about that? Can you stay away from that? We said, we, uh, the invitation for you last week was over these next two months to actually come closer, to look at the revolution of Jesus, to actually consider being a part of it, to actually consider letting the revolution of Jesus begin to turn your life and my life upside down so that he can bring the beautiful results that would actually drive out and push away fear, anger, division, and despair. And so today we're actually talking about how the revolution of Jesus deals with politics, political party, and political power. Now, in case you feel like I'm overplaying the whole revolution of Jesus, I want you to listen to today's scripture and, and listen to, these are actually words that Matthew, and we're going to be using Matthew's account of Jesus' life over these next uh, two months. There are actually four accounts of Jesus' life that we have in the New Testament scriptures. We're going to be using Matthew's one. And Matthew records these as the very first words that Jesus began to speak when he kind of came on the scene publicly at the age of 30. And these words that he went everywhere saying, and I want you to listen to them now. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Turn from your sins and turn to God because the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching everywhere the good news about the kingdom, and he healed people who had every kind of sickness and disease. God blesses those who realize their needs for him, for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. Matthew tells us that when Jesus began to teach and, and uh, travel, he said two things over and over. He said, repent, for the kingdom is here. Repent and kingdom. They were two loaded words, two provocative words. And Matthew actually describes crowds of people coming to hear him speak and teach about these things. Also, they were being healed and he was doing miracles. But everywhere he went, he was talking about these two words, repent and kingdom. And they are both words of revolution. The word repent and you may have heard uh, this explained before, it means, we often think it means feel bad about your sin, but it, it, it's not what Jesus was saying. The word repent actually means to change direction, to turn, or if we can say this, to revolve, to turn around, to change, to head in the opposite direction where things are being turned. And that was kind of like Jesus saying, hey, turn around, change, revolve, and we know this is probably actually even well translated as revolution is coming because of the other word he put with it, this word kingdom. 
kingdom. It's not a word we use very often, but man, it was loaded terminology for them because they were living in a kingdom. Their whole lives were defined by kingdom, by politics, if we can say that. They were under the empire of Rome. They were part of the empire, Roman empire, which was the fourth nation to rule them and occupy Palestine after Babylon and Persia and then uh, Greece, then Rome. And so they were under the, the heavy, heavy thumb isn't the right word. They were under the heel, the crushing heel of the Roman empire. And their world was defined by the Roman emperor. They were also under the rule of Herod, who was kind of the puppet Jewish king that the um, Romans had put in place to sort of pacify the Jews and say, look, you have a Jewish ruler. You have a king too, not just Caesar. And so, but he was, Herod was really kind of a part of the empire and was funded by the empire. And so many Jews just felt like it was oppressive and a mockery uh, and it didn't actually give them independence. And then their religious leaders were actually a form of political power over them because religion wasn't just kind of one compartment of life. Religion touched all of life. Religion told them what they could eat, when they could eat it, who they could uh, spend time with, who they should eat meals with and, and who not, how all of the religious rules govern not just their holy days, but every other day of the week. And so these were people who were in a sense under the kingdom, or if we can say power or rule or reign of the Roman empire, of the Herodian sort of government and the religious establishment. And now Jesus comes along and says, revolution, a new king is here was loaded terminology. It meant a new way, a, a new king, a new order is coming. And crowds of people started to come. And the miracles were such a huge part because they were like, man, this person has the power to do things we never thought. Maybe he will overthrow this oppressive government and rule that is wrecking our lives. And so they began to follow him. And interestingly, Matthew's gospel in particular is concerned primarily with this question of what does it mean that Jesus was king? Was he or wasn't he? Did he have this kind of authority to bring in a revolution? What was the nature of this kingdom? What did all this mean for everyone? And so the, the issue of Jesus' um, authority and kingship and what the kingdom was like was constantly being discussed in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And it was, it was hard for them to pin him down because Jesus at times would say things that seemed to support the religious establishment. And he would talk about God and the things that God required of you and all of that. At other times, he was criticizing the religious leader. He saved his harshest words for the religious leader. He called them blind guides or whitewashed tombs, which is a great, you know, it's a good insult. We should bring that one back. It means you're clean on the outside, but you got dead man's bones on the inside. You try that on the playground on the weekend. I'm just kidding. Like, don't, don't do that. But whitewashed tombs. So one time he would call them thieves or robbers and um, people who were oppressive. And so he criticized the religious establishment. There were times when people, Jesus seemed to be hanging around sort of those who were rich and powerful, but other times people who were poor and not. And, and they were constantly trying to figure, well, who, whose side are you on? What is this about? And, and what is this kingdom like? Is it like, the, are you for the Romans? Or are you against them? Are you for the religious leaders? Or are you against them? Are you for the people? Or are you against us? Are you really going to deal with the big issues that we're dealing with? Or do you not care? These things were constantly up for grabs in this account of Jesus' life. And there's one, uh, you know, one of the many stories about this kind of small um, and small in the sense of insignificant. It seems like we don't really get it, but it actually uh, tells us volumes about what the kingdom of Jesus was like. And I'm going to read it for you in a moment, but just to set it up, 
um, the Jewish and the religious leaders, essentially, and the teachers of the law, who were, again, not just uh, brokers of religion, but also political power and kind of trying to angle between, you know, the Roman Empire and the Herodian sort of government and their own thing. And Jesus was a growing threat to them because he was discrediting them publicly he was um, g- growing in popularity with the average person. A lot of people who weren't interested in the temple and religion anymore were actually following him. And even some of the religious leaders were starting to say, hey, we should listen to him. So he, they were concerned at the masses that were following, at the kinds of people that were following, the kinds of things he was saying, and the way he seemed to be usurping or throwing off their authority. So they were growing in hostility towards him and were trying to discredit him. And we come across this passage in Matthew 22, where the Pharisees are kind of setting him up to try to discredit him. And here's what it says. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, right? These are the people who were part of Herod's government. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the ways of God in accordance with the truth. And then look what they say. We know you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. They already seen some of this, that Jesus really wasn't, you know, whose side was he on anyway? Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, taxes, you know, are never a positive word for any society. We don't understand what this question was about. They were setting him up and they were trying to force him to answer a question, whose side are you on? Because the imperial taxes were probably the most hated thing about the Roman occupation of Palestine. And here's why. Imagine, you would say, oh, well, we pay a lot of taxes. But imagine in our country, uh, if a foreign nation came in with their army and invaded Canada and gunned down thousands of Canadian soldiers and troops and overpowered our military, um, stormed our, um, our, our capital and uh, took over all of our buildings, our government buildings, uh, both municipally and provincially and federally, and either put some of our leaders in jail or killed them or kicked them out and said, now we are in charge of your country. Got rid of all our Canadian currency, gave their own currency to us and said, you have to use this, and then made us pay them 90% in taxes. 90% of what we made went back to them as a way for them to keep us poor, as a way for us to fund this oppressive government and the cruel military that was actually killing us and taking our property. That's what their taxes meant to them. And so the religious leaders asked Jesus this question, hey, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, the other thing that we would not have known, but when Jesus was a boy, probably five or six, there was a revolt, a revolution led by a man named Judas. This is well-documented in uh, kind of uh, Jewish historians. Led a revolution against Rome, a military one, an uprising against the oppression of taxes in in an effort to overthrow the Roman army. Well, the Roman army crushed them and crucified hundreds of people and lined up their crosses in the streets of Jerusalem, watching all of these revolutionaries die the most brutal, bloody, painful death in front of them, basically saying, this is what happens to anyone who doesn't pay their taxes. You want to try to overthrow our tax system? We will kill you. And so the, the Pharisees are asking Jesus this question. And if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, well, they'll probably get him literally crucified. If he says, yeah, you should pay taxes to Caesar, the people will crucify him with their opinions, right? So either way he was doomed. They were, and he, they were trying to make him choose. Choose, are you for the people? Which side are you on? Are you for the people? Or are you with the government, the oppressive government? So they were setting him up. Look at what Jesus says in response. 
But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them this, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. They challenge Jesus and he gives them this answer that it says amazes them, which is basically to say they were like, we have nothing left to say, right? They came in with words to trap him, very clever. They had set up the whole thing and we're going to get him. They thought they had him to put him right between the people and the government. Whose side are you on? What party are you running? What's your kingdom about, really? And he says something that literally leaves them speechless and walks away. But there's some things lost in translation for us. So we don't actually under, understand why fully they were amazed. But this is what he did. Look what he does. He says first, hey, do you have one of those coins that we're supposed to pay taxes? Now they were around. Somebody finds a coin. Which is interesting because he's basically saying, well, you have some of those coins in your pocket. Do you know those evil coins? You know, and they were stamped with Caesar's image, which just reminded them of how they were constantly under his thumb. Um, he's like, oh, you have them. You actually have money. You deal. You're a part of this system too, the one that you're so critical of. You are profiting from it. In fact, many of the religious leaders were wealthy. They had a lot of those coins with Caesar's image on it in their pockets, in their purses. And so Jesus was basically starting to call them out and saying, oh yeah, you think you're not a part of this? You are. But then he says, whose image and whose inscription is on it? And here's what you need to know. For the Jewish people, God had told them, don't put any images on their currency. They, they weren't supposed to do that because it wasn't supposed to represent any one person who could oppressively own the money. But in Rome, <clears throat> Caesar's image was stamped on it and the inscription on every coin was, and you'll see this if you look at kind of Roman coin history, you Google these things, you'll see the, the name of the particular Caesar, whether it was Augustus or Domitian or whoever. And underneath it, it would say, um, DV, which means, or DVF, which means son of God, son of the gods. And so here's on this coin, the image is Caesar's and it says son of God on it. <clears throat> it was this kind of disgusting, oppressive way of saying, I am a God and I own you. And you even have to deal with me. Everything you buy, you're reminded of my face and my lordship over your life, right? My image is stamped on your life. And in a sense, Jesus was kind of saying, Look at this. It's disgusting, right? Whose image is on it? Whose inscription? They're like, yeah, yeah. What are you going to say next? And then he says, okay, so give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give it back to him. And commentators are actually saying they're not sure, actually, neither was certainly with Jesus' audience. What was he meaning? Because it was a kind of a turn of phrase that say, yeah, give Caesar back what he gave to you. In other words, Caesar gave you oppression. Caesar gave you violence. Give it back to him. But they couldn't know whether he was actually saying that because he had a coin in his hand. He was saying, well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. So whose side was he on? Was he with the people or was he with the government? Was he against the oppression? Was he leading a, a violent revolution or was he not? And before they give an answer to the next question, he said, but also, more importantly, give to God what is God's. Just to say, for the Jewish people listening, yeah, you know this coin Caesar's image is stamped on it. But what image is stamped on you? You are made in the image of God. 
God is the higher authority than Caesar and always has been. And the real question for you is not, what's, should we overthrow this government? But are you living a life that God, who is Lord over all, whose image is on your life, deserves? Are you giving back your life to him? Because your life belongs to him. And so they had nothing left to say. Really? The answer, Jesus answered to the question when it was asked here. And every time it was asked, Jesus, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? His answer was always no one's. I'm not on anyone's side. I'm not starting a new political party and I'm not looking for votes. Jesus did not seem to be interested in winning over certain people who would support him. In fact, he most often seemed to be criticizing the people that other people would say, hey, if you're going to start a revolution, you need those important people. You need those wealthy people. You need those people in positions of power. Those are the ones he was constantly criticizing for how they were using their power. And he saved all of his miracles and his provision for all the poor people and the sick people and the marginalized people and the non, some, in some cases, non-Jewish people who couldn't help him, who, who couldn't help him back and who nobody would pay attention to to lead a revolution. What was he doing? But Jesus wasn't just criticizing wealthy people. He was also telling poor people to say, hey, you got to look at your own life too because your actions come from what's going on in your heart and all of you need help. In a sense, Jesus wouldn't be invited, not then and not now, to any political party's convention because there's some things he would say, we'd say, yeah, and there's other things we'd say, shut him up. The reality is this, conservatives today find Jesus' interest in social justice, his insistence on um, the care for the poor uh, to be foolish, to be um, uh, costly, and even immoral. And so many conservatives today, and many even many conservative Christians, just flat out ignore a lot of the things Jesus said when it comes to racism and social justice and care for the poor. Likewise, liberals would find Jesus' insistence on um, uh, the value of human life, Jesus' sexual ethic, Jesus' um, focus on the human heart as being full of sin and needing forgiveness and repentance and cleansing as out of date, as irrelevant, as foolish, as even wrong and immoral. Liberal Christians want to just ignore the fact that Jesus said anything about sin or sexual ethic. And so the, the reality is this, is both conservatives and Christians, and both conservatives and liberals, conservative Christians and Christian liberals find Jesus difficult to take. And there are aspects of his life and his kingdom that we want nothing to do with. And the truth is what is absent from almost all political parties and all conversation about this, even within Christian circles, is what Jesus seemed to be most important about his political platform, if you want to say it that way. Reconciliation, repentance, and forgiveness. These things are conspicuously absent from our dialogue about politics and power today. Instead, what? One party criticizes the other. Whatever party's in power gets criticized and blamed, and that's just the way it is. And it's not just in politics, but in power in, in general. In, in many of the stuff that we watch on YouTube about certain kinds of liberal Christianity, progressive Christianity, conservative Christianity, what, orthodox Christianity, whatever, whatever you want to call it, is constantly actually perpetuating uh, rhetorics of division and blame and criticism. 
And Jesus, in fact, when he was teaching, was constantly actually bringing people together. His platform, right, was one of reconciliation. You think about the fact that even in Jesus' inner circle, he invited a zealot and a tax collector both to be his followers. Zealots were people who were kind of political insurrectionists. They were the ones that believed that the only way to overthrow an oppressive, violent government was with violence in return. And so there were zealots. There were people who were sometimes thrown in jail or whatever for murdering a Roman uh, guard or centurion or trying to lead an insurrection. And so Jesus says to this zealot who hates the establishment, who hated everything about Rome and said, come follow me. But then he goes to a tax collector who was basically a Jewish person who had um, uh, betrayed their own people by collecting taxes for Rome to say, come. And he put the two of them at the same table and said, now you are brothers. Right? That is a kind of reconciliation and unity that our world knows nothing about. I mean, we try to just basically make it have civil debates between members of parties. We don't ever expect them to be, to be reconciled, to be actually friends, to work together. It would be like having the head of PETA and the head of Maple Leaf Meats, you know, working together on a new whatever, a wave that people can eat healthy. Like, it's a whole new level. Jesus, like, we don't even have categories for a sort of tax collector and zealot, but that's what it would be like. It would be like Jagmeet Singh and Doug Ford saying, oh, we're abandoning, we're, we're forming a new party and we're going to work together for the good of the people and we're going to forgive each other for the things we said each other in the me- about each other in the media. And, and we, you guys, you're laughing as I'm listening to you. Why? Because we don't live. That's not how politics and power works. And it's not just out there. It's also in here. See, yes, Jesus invited wealthy people to give away their wealth to help the poor. But he also invited the poor to bless and serve those who were in power and authority over them. Nobody escaped sort of the probing teachings of Jesus that invited them into a new kind of power, a new kind of kingdom where reconciliation, repentance, and forgiveness were the keystones. Neither political party likes those things. It's dangerous to all of us. The truth is Jesus' revolution ended up getting him killed. (laughs) And yet the scriptures tell us that the ultimate statement of his kingship and his rule and the fact that he was bringing in a new power and a new way to live was the fact that he was willing to give up his life on the cross. Right? Right over the top of his cross, the Romans had nailed this thing that said, King of the Jews. And it was this beautiful, ironic statement of Jesus saying, yes, this is how I choose to use my power. This is what this king does with his life. He lays it down for his friends. He uses his power in the service of others. And the Jewish religious leaders at that time rejected him, said, take that off. He's not our king. The Romans put it up there just to mock him as king. And three days later, he rose from the dead to prove to them that he was indeed Lord of all. He was greater than any other political party, any other leader, any other rule. And that's what he chose to do with his life, with his power. And that is when the revolution began. Before we kind of land the plane today and say, okay, so what does that mean for us? You and I who live in a world where politics and power and media is based on blame and criticism and division. Before we kind of get to what that means, I want to pause here and the band's going to lead us in this beautiful song called The King of Kings. And it just affirms that this is who our leader and our Lord is. This is the way his beautiful revolution was led. 
by him giving up himself for us and therefore is now exalted as the king.
My dear friends, the reason we can sing like this to King Jesus is because his kingdom is beautiful. It's beautiful because if this is the kind of leader he is, we can trust him. Why? Because he's not trying to use us to support his particular party. He's not trying to uh, be nice to us to get our vote. He's not looking at us for what we can offer him in terms of what wealth or power. That's how politics works in the world, but not Jesus. Jesus invites us to follow him. Jesus does the things he does and says the things he does purely because he loves you. He loves me. He can be trusted. He's not angling. He's not trying to build his own platform. He's not trying to use people to bring, in a sense, his own stock up. He is ultimately glorious. He was ultimately raised to life. He doesn't need any fans or votes. That's why he's beautiful. He can be trusted. <laughs> but he's also dangerous, right? Because he doesn't say, vote for me. What does he say? Follow me. Follow me. My image is stamped on your life. Trust me with your life. And so here's what I want to do as we uh, kind of come to a close. First, I want to give you a moment to reflect. My mind went to a statue that is above uh, the city of Rio de Janeiro. It's called the Cristo Redentor, Christ the Redeemer. It's a massive statue, towers above the city, towers even above the people who you can see in the image there that just come to the foot of it. So huge, so big. What's so beautiful about this image though, it, it is a massive image of Christ, the Redeemer. And yet it's not a statue of a warrior on a horse where the, the horse is on its hind legs and its hoofs are in the air ready to stamp and trample on anyone who would oppose him. That, that's not what the statue is. Likewise, it's not Jesus with a sword or a war club raised in his right hand, ready to strike and cut down his enemies. Neither is it a statue of Jesus with his clenched fist shaking it at the world and a mouth that's open and yelling angry criticisms or insults at people who are different from him or who oppose him. No, what is it? It is a statue. It is a picture of Christ the Redeemer with his arms stretched wide. It is a reminder of the cross. It is a reminder of how our king used his power, that he gave up his life. And so with that image in your mind, I want you to close your eyes just for a moment. I want you to think about someone in your life or something in your life that you feel like has a lot of power over you. Maybe, maybe it's a, a politician. Maybe it's a political party. Maybe you feel like it's the decisions that are being made by politicians in general that have power over you. Maybe it's an education minister. Maybe it's a health minister. Maybe it's a teacher, a principal, a boss, a parent. You feel like you're, you're not being noticed by them. You're not being cared for by them. You feel like you're being trampled on by their decisions. You feel like they're indirectly or directly hurting you by the things they're choosing to do. Now I want you to picture Christ with his arms out wide, towering over them to the point that his whole shadow covers you and them. 
that you and this other individual or whatever institution are, are dwarfed in this massive image of Christ with his arms open wide. And I want you to look up in a sense and see his face and hear him say this to you. I see you. I am above this. I died for this. You can trust me. My prayer and hope is that that image will stay with you and maybe that's something you just need to rehearse again and again on your way to work or on your way to school or when you're encountering, you know, whatever you're going to deal with or when you get up in the morning to remember Christ with his arms stretched wide over and greater than all of the powers and politics that we are dealing with. Secondly, more practically, a couple of suggestions for you. I want to invite you to go to a website that was put together a couple years ago during our, uh, the 2019 federal election. It's canada.isidewith.com. And it's a survey that after you finish answering a whole bunch of questions, it'll tell you which political party you align with most. And I want you to do this exercise for this reason. Someone said years ago it was so helpful. He said, if I gave you 10 arrows and you were going to fire them at a target, and that, let's say the bullseye is Jesus, like, and these were 10, say, issues, things that you had opinions of or the things you had to decide on or that mattered to you. And you, the goal is to, to hit the bullseye to say, okay, Jesus, I want to be right where you are in this issue. I want to think like you think on this issue. Jesus, I want to let you be the king of this issue. And you fired those 10 arrows. And then we walked up to the target and all 10 arrows were left of center or all 10 arrows were right of center. Would we conclude, oh, you were aiming for Jesus or you were just aiming for not right or not left, right? Our goal is actually that they will be all over the place as close as they can to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus wasn't a liberal or a conservative. He wasn't touting a certain political party's tenets and saying, yeah, I'll speak at your convention and not yours. I'll go to your church, but not yours. That's not who Jesus was. He is center not center politically. He is the center of everything. Our goal is to align ourselves with this. So if you look and you do that survey and you have a very large percentage that says you should, you are a high percentage vote in one party, you have to ask yourself, are my leanings on these issues, social issues, financial issues, political issues, are they mostly assigned with a political party? Or are they mostly aligned with Jesus? Because you and I are called to be voices and influences and people who align ourselves with the kingdom of Jesus. And so lastly, practically, you think of one area, one issue or one person, just one area, an issue or person, where for the most part, you've been like this. You've had a closed fist about and maybe an open, angry mouth. And maybe not using your actual mouth, but your words on social media. Where you've been angry and active about this one issue. What would it mean for you to do less of this and more of this? Which is to say, to talk less, to be angry less, and actually begin to serve. To serve a person in an area or in an issue. To let the kingdom of Jesus invite you into sacrificial service and action because that's 
how the revolution happens. Now you might feel fine when you're going to do that thing where you're saying, okay, less of, less of the fists and more of open hands. Okay, it sounds nice, but does it really work? Is that really going to work up against these massive powers and issues that we are dealing with socially, economically, politically, you know, environmentally? Is that really going to make a difference? Well, I think the very first century Jesus followers could have said the same thing. Jesus, this is this revolution you're writing to give up our lives against this oppressive government. They could have never imagined that in a couple of centuries, the entire Roman Empire would be on its knees begging for mercy and the Roman Emperor would say, fine, I will become a Jesus follower too. They could have never imagined it. So I want to bless you with faith to believe as you do less of this and more of this, that in you and through you, Jesus is bringing his revolution. Thank you.